So thank you for uh, tuning in again this week for our church Bible study. As we begin our Bible study, I just want to remind us that it's really important for us uh, to keep on feeding on God's word together. Even though we can't be together at church, it is really important that we give ourselves to the priority of listening to God's word uh, and nourishing ourselves upon him. So let's pray now and just ask for God's help uh, as we come to his word to listen well. Dear Lord God, we thank you again for this great privilege of opening our Bibles and hearing you speak to us. Dear Father, we uh, do not take it for granted. Lord, it's an awesome privilege. And we pray that as we turn to your word now, you would help us to listen. Help us to be shaped by your word. We pray that through your word, you may continue to protect us and keep us and that you would bring us safe home. In Jesus name. Amen. Okay, so uh, tonight we uh, start our first part in the book of Daniel. Uh, we're going to be having a great time in this book. Uh, and this book, really, uh, throughout the whole book, it's going to he- help us to keep believing that Jesus is a king, even when everything in the world around us says that he's not. That's really one of the big applications throughout the whole book, that we would keep believing that Jesus is king, even when everything in the world around us says that he's not. Jesus, uh, on the night before he died, as he prayed for his disciples, he prayed for his disciples who were in the world, but they were not of the world. And as we go through the book of Daniel, we're going to see what it means to keep on living as citizens of God's kingdom in a world that is opposed to Jesus Christ. Before we uh, begin to read from Daniel chapter 1, I just want to make a couple of comments about the book as a whole and its structure. You can see there on the handout that I've been uh, playing on my computer today, I've done two basic diagrams that show us how we can split the book up. A quick skim read of the book of Daniel will show you that it falls neatly into two halves, two very obvious halves. The first half chapters 1 to 6 is a narrative it's all about Daniel and his friends it's written in the third person the second half of the book chapters 7 to 12 is very different from the first half it's full of uh, strange visions and dreams and it's a little bit strange to read Uh, and that's led some people to kind of split the book into two halves so often if you get a bible study series it will look at chapters 1 to 6 and focus on the life of Daniel and his uh, three friends and sometimes chapters 7 to 12 become detached from the rest of the book. But as you read the book of Daniel a bit more carefully you see that there's another layer to the structure of the book. This isn't obviously apparent in our English translations but it's unmissable in the original. Uh, Chapter 2 verse 4 you might want to just turn there the language of the book changes there should be a footnote in your Bible, it switches from Hebrew to Aramaic. Uh, Aramaic was the kind of well-known or common language of the day, a little bit like English uh, is, a, is a common language spoken by many other people who aren't English. Aramaic was uh, similar. Uh, and so chapters 2 to 7 are written in Aramaic. And that highlights that these chapters 2 to 7 are, are, a, are a kind of section on their own. These six chapters, they have a structure of their own. I've tried to illustrate that in the diagram as well. You can see from the colours that chapters 2 and 7 belong together. 
in chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And in chapter 7, Daniel has a dream. And both dreams are about the kingdoms of this world and then the arrival of God's everlasting kingdom. Chapters 3 and 6 also belong together. That's the more well-known chapters. Chapter 3 is a fiery furnace. Uh, and chapter 6 is Daniel in the lion's den. But both of these chapters describe the, the rescue of God's faithful people, even though the kings of this world trample them. And then chapters 4 and 5, they also belong together. They, they describe God's dealings with the kings of this world. Chapter 4 is Nebuchadnezzar and chapter 5 is Belshazzar. One, God graciously humbles. The other, he justly punishes. And this uh, structure shows us that the two halves, the narrative and the visions, they most certainly belong together. We, we cannot afford to take the first half, chapters 1 to 6, and ignore the, the second half. Nor should we look at the second half, chapters 7 to 12, in isolation from the narrative of chapter 1 to 6. And actually this structure also gives chapter 7 a position of prominence. In a way, chapter 7 links both the narrative and the visions together. Uh, and it's going to be helpful for us to keep these thoughts about the structure in our mind as we go through the book as a whole. But let's let's look now at uh, chapter 1. It may be good now if you want to just pause the recording and read uh, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1. And then there's a couple of questions on your handout to think through. They are, if you were an Israelite, how would the scene in verse 1 and 2 make you feel? And at the start of the book, who seems to be the victor? So maybe just pause the recording and have a think about those two questions. Okay, verses 1 and 2, they set the scene for the whole book. Very briefly, they describe the conquest and exile of the southern kingdom, Judah. In the 6th century BC, uh, around 604, was the first of, of three waves of attacks by the Babylonians on the kingdom of Judah. The last wave of attacks came around 587 BC. In verse 1, we're introduced to two kings. The first king, uh, Jehoiakim, the king of Judah. He's the king of God's people and the kings of Israel had a rich heritage. In fact, God had promised to bring from the line of the great King David, king of Israel, a king that would be a king of an everlasting kingdom. The second king is Nebuchadnezzar. We introduced to him there in verse one also. He's, he's the king of Babylon. This is the new global superpower to the east of Israel and he's been extending his kingdom and the greatness of his name has spread and at the end of verse one that describes how he lays siege to Jerusalem and that brings us from these two kings to two cities that we see here in the introduction the first city there has already been mentioned Jerusalem at the end of verse one this is the principal city in the kingdom of Judah it was the place where the king of Judah had his throne. It was also the theological centre of the world. The temple was in Jerusalem and the temple was the place where people could meet God. The temple was where heaven, God's place, touched earth, our, our place. And, and the hope of the people of Israel, the hope of the world, was tied to the city of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was to be a city where its king ruled under God and where everything was done right, a place of righteousness and therefore of blessing. 
And Jerusalem was to be a window for the world into the glory of God. It was to reveal God to his creation. The second city we are introduced uh, towards the end of verse 2 is the city of Babylonia. Babylonia is the capital city of great King Nebuchadnezzar. In Babylonia, Nebuchadnezzar had the temple of his God. And you can see it's in this temple that he puts the plunder of the Israelites in. He, he's taken some of the gold, some of the articles from the temple of the God of Israel, and he takes them and he puts them into the treasure house of his God. And so these opening verses uh, introduce us to a story of two kings and two cities. And as we read verses one and two, I don't know about you, uh, but it feels like the events that form the reality of Daniel's life and the life of his three, three friends, uh, they seem a long, long way from our present day. We're separated from them by over two and a half millennia and several thousand miles. But what I want just to help us see is that the truth uh, of Daniel's situation is actually far more similar to ours than we may at first realise. So let's see that together, just as we think about these two cities in particular. In the Bible, while these two cities, Jerusalem and Babylonia, are historical and geographical places, and while what's narrated here at the start of Daniel in verses 1 and 2 is a historical narrative. In the Bible, these two places come to represent something greater than just the historical and geographical places of Babylonia and Jerusalem. Let's see that with uh, Babylonia. If you look at the footnote in verse 2, it will tell you that the word Babylonia is also uh, Shinar. Now, you may not know anything about Shinar, but Shinar has already cropped up in the Bible before. It's most famous for being the place where the Tower of Babel was built. That's the place where mankind all joined together to prove their greatness and their supremacy in defiance of God. The city of Babylon in the book of Daniel under the rule of Nebuchadnezzar is a place where no higher rule is recognised other than the rule of man. It's where powerful people get to define what's right and wrong and if you don't fall into line with them you're likely to get into trouble and lose your head. In Zechariah 5 verses 5 to 11 we meet, read a bit more about this place Shinar. It's a place where all the sin and wickedness of the world lives. And when we get to the end of the Bible, in chapters 17 to 19 of the book of Revelation, we see how Babylon has become a symbol of the dwelling place of all those who are anti-God and opposed to his anointed king. All those who love rebellion and sin. So while Babylon seems a long way away from us, historically and geographically it's really closer than we think in fact Babylon is is all around us Babylon is the world we live in like Daniel we also live and work in in Babylon but like Daniel we're also not Babylonian if we belong to Jesus we belong to another city that is the city of God and Jerusalem in the Bible 
becomes the complete opposite of Babylon. Jerusalem is a place not where man lives in rebellion against God, but where man lives in a right relationship with God. Jerusalem is to be a place of righteousness and justice. And as we go through the book of Daniel, we're going to see how it's possible to live in Babylon while holding citizenship in the city of God. If you want to know how the Israelites felt about the exile to Babylon, just have a read of Psalm 137. The conquest and exile of Jerusalem, it was a brutal affair and it looks like Babylon has won, doesn't it? At least as we look at verses 1 and 2 of Daniel chapter 1. For those exiles, it seemed like the hope of Jerusalem was left in a pile of rubble as the temple treasure is placed in the treasure house of the god of Babylon. It looks like the Babylonians and the king of Babylon and the god of Babylon is supreme. But when we read carefully, even at the start of the book here, we see that's not the case. The god of Babylon is not God. There's only one god here, and that is the Lord, Yahweh, the the covenant-keeping god. He's made a covenant with his people in the wilderness. He promised blessings for obedience and curses for rebellion. And the exile has happened not because the Lord is conquered, but because the Lord gives his people what they deserve. Look at verse 2. And the Lord delivered, gave up Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. This exile is ultimately the Lord's doing. So that's the setting of the scene. We have these two kings, these two cities, and the Lord God. Let's look now at verses 3 to 16 and see what life is like in Babylon uh, for some of these exiles. One of the plans of the king Nebuchadnezzar is to immerse these new exiles in Babylonian life so they forget Jerusalem and they become Babylonian. Verses 3 to 16 of chapter 1 tell us what life was like living in Babylon. Maybe just uh, pause the uh, recording now and have a read of verses 3 to 16. uh, And then have a think about uh, these questions. In what ways did the young men of Israel face pressure to conform? And the second question, these are both on your sheets. How, How did Daniel and his three friends resist this pressure and is there anything that surprises you about what these men resist and the manner of their resistance so just pause the recording uh, and read through those verses okay verses uh, 3 to 16 living in babylon when the babylons uh, conquered any uh, peoples uh, they used both brawn and brain brawn in that they had a massive army uh, a military might but they also used their, their brains they made sure that when they conquered a people they took from that people into exile the cream of the crop they didn't take every single person into exile to babylon but they certainly took the cleverest and the smartest let me read verses three and four Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand and qualified to serve 
in the king's palace. This was a really good tactic uh, used by many other empires as well. It meant that the smartest and most influential Israelites were now in Babylon. So not only could they benefit Babylon, they served in the king's palace, but also King Nebuchadnezzar could keep an eye on them. So there was no chance of an uprising uh, starting out in the conquered provinces. And while they were in Babylon, they could serve the king uh, and use all of their gifts uh, to help the kingdom of Babylon grow. And while they were there in the palace, they can be taught all the superior ways of the city of Babylon. And that's what's going on in verses 3 to 7. Verses 3 to 7 describe three ways in particular where these young men are going to be squeezed into the Babylonian mould. The first is they're going to be taught the language and literature of Babylon. A three-year course that's going to immerse them in the value system of this new city. It's, it's mandatory training. They are going to learn what to say and not what to say if they want to get ahead in Babylon. They're going to be plunged into the stories that form the social imagination of everyone in Babylon. And this education is going to shape their aims and their desires. And it's all going to be carried out in a language that's not their native tongue. The second area of planned immersion is, is the arena of food. Verse 5, they're going to be able to enjoy the food and wine from the king's table. They're going to be shown that the king of Babylon can not only give them food to sustain them, but he gives the good life. Babylon is a, is a feast. And then in verse 6 and 7, there's this name change. The Hebrew names are switched to Babylonian names. Verse 6 literally says that the chief officer set new names for them. This chief official exerts his authority over these young Hebrew lads by giving them a new name. And if we can see, uh, we can see exactly what's going on with these names when we look at the meaning of the names that they had and the meaning of the names that they're given. Let me give you an example of how these name changes work. So the chief of official sets for Daniel whose name means God is judge. Daniel's name is changed to Belteshazzar. And Bel means may God Bel protect you. Or look at Mishael. His name means who is like God. It's changed to Meshach, which means who is like Aku. That's one of the gods of Babylon. So Daniel's original name was given to honour and praise the Lord God. But now every time he hears his name, he's been indoctrinated with the idea that Bel is the one who protects him. And it's through this planned immersion in the culture and spirit of Babylon that Nebuchadnezzar plans for these boys to forget about anything other than Babylon. And that's exactly like the world we live in, isn't it? The world we live in wants us to squeeze us into its mould. It happens in, in similar ways through educational institutions. Language can also become a means of trying to create and build a new reality. The world where people want to remove the fingerprints of God. And the values of Babylon come to us in narrative thought form through the carefully produced TV box sets and the news websites. And Babylon still holds out the good life to us. It appeals to our senses and promises to give us everything that will satisfy us. 
And as people who belong to King Jesus, but who live in this world, we're going to face pressure to conform in lots of different ways. And it's going to feel at times like we are sinking in Babylon. I think that's certainly how Daniel felt. When we get to verse 8 of chapter 1, we see Daniel pushing back and taking measures to stay afloat. In verse 8, we see that Daniel and his friends have come with a plan to resist the pressure. Let me read. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Just as a king's official set a name upon Daniel, so Daniel set it upon himself not to defile himself. And his point of resistance may surprise us. He refuses the food. Of the three, the, the food seems like the least bad option on, on the initial read, doesn't it? The names, they're, they're offensive. They extol the, the foreign gods who are no gods at all. The training and indoctrination of the, the Babylonian educational institutions, surely that should be opposed. But no, it's the food that Daniel won't eat. All sorts of reasons are given why Daniel wouldn't eat the food. Some say it was to do with the law. Maybe it was forbidden food according to uh, the law of Moses. But that can't be the case because he says no to the wine as well. Others say it may have been offered to idols. But what's not to say that the vegetables that he was given were not also offered to idols. It may have been that to eat at the king's table was a sign of dependence and subservience to the king. That's what it seems to be at the end of two kings. Perhaps the idea of feasting was abhorrent to Daniel while Jerusalem was in rubble. I don't think we can say with 100% certainty exactly why the food was defiling for Daniel. But I think we can say that Daniel's actions are actions of resistance. To eat is an act of friendship. It's an act of participation. When we eat something, we, we take it into us. Daniel is surrounded by Babylon. Babylon is smothering him and there's a real danger that he will sink. And so he draws a line in the sand which says, I may be in Babylon, but I'm not Babylonian. And we too, as God's people living in a foreign land, will have to draw such lines in the sand if we're not going to be swept away. There's a saying that goes something like this, gently, gently, catchy monkey. The saying means that if you want to catch a monkey, you don't burst through the bush making a loud noise. You creep up on it gently and quietly until you've got it in your grasp. And it's a similar thing that's going up on, on in Babylon here. Daniel and his friends, if they're not careful, are slowly but surely they are being moulded into being Babylonians. And so this refusal of the food, it's an act of protest and resistance. For us too, if we are going to live uh, as people who belong to Jesus in this world, we too are going to have to mount a resistance. A resistance that will mean while we live in this world, this world does not live in us. What's surprising about this resistance that comes from Daniel and his friends is that it's just quite a quiet resistance. 
Daniel doesn't picket and protest and demand his rights. He goes quietly to this chief official and simply asks for a different diet. And notice that as he does so, the grace and the compassion of the Lord meets him. Verse 9. Now God has caused the official to show favour and compassion to Daniel. God gave his people into the hands of the Babylonians and now he gives grace and compassion to Daniel and politely and persuasively Daniel encourages the official to to let him and his three friends have the water and vegetable diet and the miracle is is that after 10 days they looked healthier and more nourished literally more fuller of flesh than any of their other flesh-eating counterparts and so they continue on the special diet verse 16 and so the guard took away their choice food and the wine and they were to drink the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead and so now as Daniel and his friends sit down to eat every day they're reminded they're in Babylon but they don't belong to Babylon they're not Babylonian and there may be all sorts of ways in which we too have to draw these lines of resistance that remind us even though we live in this world, the world, this world is not our home. And then finally, uh, verses 17 to 21, they show us a life beyond Babylon. In verse 17, we see a gift given. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. Then as we go down to verse 19, the king talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. So they entered the king's service in every matter of wisdom and understanding and about which the king questioned them. He found them ten times better than all the magicians and the enchanters in the whole kingdom. So God gives to these four young men understanding and knowledge of all kinds of literature and learning and Nebuchadnezzar the king recognizes this gift that God has given them he doesn't recognize God as the giver but he recognizes the gift notice what these uh, four boys don't do they don't withdraw from Babylon they study Babylonian literature and they excel Often in history, Christians have walked one of two paths with regard to this world. The first path is, is the path of withdrawal. That's where we separate ourselves off from all of the learning and all the intellectual pursuit and all of the arts and music and literature of the world. The other path is a path of assimilation. That's where we just imbibe and consume uh, and take on board all of the learning and the literature of this world. But these uh, boys do neither of those two paths. They really are in the world, but not of the world. You see, all the truth that we find within the world is, is God's truth. And so Christians can study the world and engage in scientific endeavour and excel. In fact, many of the well-known scientists throughout history have been Christians who have believed in a God who created the world, a God of order, and that is the basis for, for all science. And so these boys, as they're given wisdom by God, they excel. But Daniel is also given a special kind of wisdom 
a wisdom that you can't get just by observing the world around you, a wisdom that has to be revealed to you. And you see that in verse, the end of verse 17. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. God is going to give Daniel insight that comes from another world, this wisdom that comes from above. And ultimately, it's this revelation that's going to provide for Daniel and his friends the sticking power and the staying power to continue to live faithfully in Babylon, even when Babylon threatens to kill them. We said at the start when we looked at the structure of the book that chapter 7 is, is, is a pivotal chapter that kind of holds the two halves together. In chapter 7, we see uh, the kingdoms of this world in all their battling and brawling beastliness. But we also see right at the heart of chapter 7 and right at the heart of the book of Daniel, another scene, a throne room scene where the Ancient of Days sits on a throne and he gives the kingdom to one like the Son of Man. And this Son of Man, who we know is Jesus, will rule a kingdom that lasts forever. And it's through these, this special revelation, this special wisdom that Daniel receives in the visions that these four men are going to be strengthened to keep living faithfully. These visions tell them that it's not Babylon that lasts forever. It's God's kingdom that lasts forever. There is life beyond Babylon. And that's what we see right at the end of chapter 1. Seems a little tag on verse, verse 21. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Who's King Cyrus? Well, he's king after Nebuchadnezzar has gone. In fact, after Nebuchadnezzar, there's another king, uh, Belshazzar. After Belshazzar, there's another king, Darius. And after Darius, there's a, a King Cyrus. And so Daniel lives through the kingdoms of all of these for kings and the point is that as Daniel holds to God's wisdom as he puts his hope in in God's Christ he enjoys life beyond Babylon and for us we need to know that this world is not all there is there is the kingdom of Jesus Christ that will last forever And so as we live in this world, we must live as people who mount a resistance to the prevailing pressures uh, of this godless world to squeeze us into its mould. I've put some questions on the sheet, on the bottom of the sheet for you to think through. And if you want to, it may be good uh, next week if you meet on your home groups on Zoom to chat those questions through. But as we uh, close uh, our study this evening, I just want to pray for us. Uh, and that God would uh, continue to speak to us through his word. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we uh, thank you for this chapter in Daniel that we've looked at. Father, help us to see what it will mean for us to live in this world, but not be of the world. Dear Lord, we pray that as we go through this book of Daniel, you will so thrill us uh, with a vision of Christ Jesus and your kingdom, that we would be people who keep living faithfully in this world. Help us, Lord, to be faithful in the little things and in the big things, we pray. Lord, we thank you again in Jesus' name. Amen.